It's fun to talk to science reporters. Do you know the etymology of depression? What's the etymology of depression? It's from the Latin to press down, uh-huh. um, which I guess, you know, is road-like. You, you dig out a road. And it was used as an astronomical term before the emotional term. And then it was economical and finally meteorological, <laughs> as in referring to the barometric pressure of a well, system. Well, what's the astronomical, though? Like a star below the horizon line, an angle that there's something which I didn't even know you could have a star below the horizon line, but that's what the that's what the internet tell me, and uh, that's what I was doing. Lulu, I have felt like a star below the horizon line my entire <laughs> life. <laughs> yeah. When will the sun come up on me? It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. From chaos can come comfort, not in the chaos itself, but in the human effort to defy it, to recover, to overcome, to navigate through. I'm Lulu Miller, and I'm the co-founder of the NPR radio show Invisibilia, and a contributor there, and a contributor to Radiolab, and I do some editing on Nancy and Heavyweight, and I have just written my first and likely only book (laughs) called Why Fish Don't Exist. We'll find out why fish don't exist in a little bit, I promise. In her work, Lulu Miller has this ability to tell stories related to science in a profoundly human way. The science gets explained, but the relevance to people trying to live their life gets examined as well. The listener comes to understand science and people too. Like a lot of people looking to treat their depression, you you tackle it with a fascination with long-dead taxonomists who study <laughs> f- fish. The, the tried and true uh, uh, technique of archival <laughs> research of obscure uh, 19th century ichthyologists, you know? <laughs> Right. Yeah, there's the talking cure, the pharmaceutical <laughs> cure, and the ichthyological cure. Exactly. Exactly. But let's back up. The depression Lulu's been addressing through long-dead fish experts is not a new thing. It goes back to growing up in Massachusetts. I think it was third grade, maybe even second grade. I had to start seeing a therapist. And then again in fifth grade. Yeah, definitely. Definitely later on in middle school and stuff. And I think I think there was just this encroaching worry about how cruel the world can be and kind of like a pressure, like I guess just a, a pressure to to ease it for myself and 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 cheer up other people and make the like make the cruelty and the uncaring and the bad going away. Like I think that started in me maybe before the depression, and then maybe the depression arised out of the fact that, like, a seven-year-old, eight-year-old girl is is got a pretty doomed shot of that. And, and just this overwhelming feeling of, like, just not knowing how to, to make the bad go away and then, and then feeling exhausted and down or something. And, and anyway, so it was, yeah, I think it was, like, I think it's privately been there for a long time and manifested in different ways. 
the therapy wasn't helping, and she wasn't helping the therapy. For a long time, I, f- I, I like felt like therapists, it was like an adversary, like a game where it was like this sick, I wanted to prove that I didn't need help, and so I would just lie to them and mm. like say everything was fine. I mean, the, th- the main thing that first started manifesting was eating stuff, um, and there were these times in early childhood where I was like restricting a lot and losing weight and and um and so I'd have to go to see a child therapist and then I'd just say, I'm eating <laughs> um <laughs> and and I'm laughing at it only because it was it was so silly of me to like like I to treat it that way because th- those were probably people who totally could have helped. But I just wanted to like even reassure them I was fine. And yeah. were you um, trying to reassure yourself you were fine? Were you trying to believe the lies you were saying? It was so weird. Obviously, I think I didn't. Some part of me didn't want people uh, in my family to know that I needed any help. Like I think, I think, I mean, basically, I, I think that the house could be a little bit of a loud, disorienting place. Um, my my oldest sister had some stuff, various stuff going on with mental health and was misdiagnosed all over the place, which made it so hard for her and so hard for my parents. She was there first. And there was just a lot of confusion. Um, and I learned, I'm the youngest of three girls, and I learned quickly that like I could make the loud and the confusion go away by just like just being gentle or delightful or simple, like just mm. being um, a soother or a pleaser. Like it, it just, it was just very quickly I learned that like that could make some of the tears or the loud stop. And yeah. and I liked that. I liked it. It was selfish. I wanted the loud to stop. I wanted people to smile, you know, and it worked. And and I ha- I knew how to do it. And I think that probably the meaning I have made of it all is that, yeah, like I think some part of me felt like that was too much pressure for a little girl and maybe the eating stuff was a way of actually showing adults I needed help and I wasn't as okay as I was telling everyone I was. Mm, Okay. I I think that's how I've made sense of it. But then when I would, when I would like in those early therapist appointments, I would just you know, my body was probably crying for help, and and but my words and my brain were still smiling and laughing and reassuring that I was fine. Um, I think it just felt forbidden to be another thing that needed help in that house, even though, again, in retrospect, I totally needed help and people were helping me. But uh, I started to, like, take that need and that worry of, of delighting. Like, I just started to... <laughs> taking it all around, like where it wasn't even needed, you know, but like I'd worry about, I'd worry about Fred, like someone in a class who seemed like a loner, you know, in a, in a like gentle, tender way. I'd, I'd have these patronizing, now I think they're patronizing thoughts, but like where <laughs> I'd think if I wasn't nice to them, they might die or like, like that, that like I could heal them. And this is just, in retrospect, is ridiculous, but like I would, I would worry. Well, it's ridiculous, and... but it's empathetic though too. Like you sound incredibly empathetic. Yeah, but I think I think that's how I thought of it in the moment. But in retrospect, like now as I look back, I also see how like patronizing that is in a sense. Like that I that I have the key to whether this person <laughs> is sad or how. Anyway, so that I just want to like acknowledge that it's ridiculous. Can I ask you a therapist question here? 
Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. is why is it important for you to uh, establish that that it was ridiculous and patronizing? Why is that important to you now? Just because there's uh why well, I don't know, John Mo. Um <laughs> I think it's important. Okay, you know what it probably is. I think it's important for me to laugh at myself and and mock that that impulse in me it, as a way of def- like getting some handle on it because I still feel it. I still worry and I think, oh, if I don't write that friend, if I don't call them back, if I don't at the end of a long day when I'm now weary, like I I think I think to call that impulse hubris actually lets me off the hook and is like oh lulu you're being silly they don't they don't need you to survive i think it i think it helps me nowadays diffuse what still feels like a a a worry that that can like consume my head a lot in her teenage years lulu developed issues with her body she felt her body her appearance were not okay like not quite look edible i don't know that was just the feeling like um, like I was too puffy or pancake faced or all these, I just, I felt like I was, something was very off about me. And, and so I think eating also played into that of just like, if I could just shave off a few pounds and create a few angles in my face, then I'd be easier to look at. And so I would just feel better in my body, you know, on a day where I didn't, you know, like where I only ate a grapefruit or something. And so that that was all going on. And um, and then I, yeah, and, and then I just, when I was around, yeah, when I was a sophomore, spring of my sophomore year in high school, I think just it was a lot of confluence of things. And one of the big ones was just this feeling, you know, being raised, like, as an atheist and there's no promises in store and feeling like the world is cruel and we're all just animals and you might get lucky and end up with love, but you might not. And there's not necessarily any refuge awaiting for anyone. And and seeing my oldest sister being treated like so horribly by the world and feeling lonely. And, and I got dumped by this guy that I just had loved. He was like a the cousin of a friend and he was Belgian and we met in the summer and we spoke French and and like we had this long distance relationship but then I saw him the next summer and he like dumped me on the spot and I didn't know why and I assumed it was because of what I looked like and it was just like you know that had happened a long you know months and months before but it was it was just like this sense of loneliness and nothing no promise of good in store anywhere and I just, you know, I like, I just decided, you know, life is supposed to be about finding the pleasure and the meaning. And, and if you can't, some people aren't as good at doing that. And I would just maybe like to take myself out of it. And hopefully, like, the people will understand and, you know, like, it just something is wrong with my receptors because like all I feel is pain and um and then I just you know I think I'd been fantasizing about not being around for a long time 
just taking myself out, just like riding the slide, the exit ramp. She attempted suicide. And the next thing she knew, she was waking up in a medical facility. Tried therapy again, and this time it clicked. It was the first person I could talk to, like, oh, I get choked up thinking about her, like, who, who, who I could just, <laughs> you know, like, be real with. And, and it just suddenly, you know, I was 16 and, like, <laughs> it was just finally, like, the charade stopped. It wasn't about are you, aren't you. It was just like, oh, let's, let's deal with, let's deal with how you got here. And, uh, man, did that help me, like, so much. Because it, where you because could be it was a, a new voice? It was not it somebody was a, in your head or your family? Yeah, and yeah, and it was like, and someone who used humor, you know, like someone who could laugh, and um, and there was just something we switched from "Are you aren't you sick?" to, <laughs> to "What's up?" <laughs> and right. and I think, yeah, I think that that was like a profound shift for me, um, and just good old classic talk therapy, talking it out with humor, with tears, with honesty and safety that nothing you could say was gonna, you know, go anywhere was was profound. The therapy was finally solid. It was a safe, good, honest place to go. But school got trickier. After my suicide attempt, I was like, I was banned from attending a school field trip because it was like I would be too much of a danger, the risk. And 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 it was like I felt like exp- I felt like everybody knew. And I was so embarrassed. Like I was so embarrassed. I didn't want to be the suicide girl. I didn't want to be, you know, all that. And so I think a lot of my personality actually like that that was a real pivot point where I just started doing everything I could to never have seemed like the person who did that and and being like extra cheerful and extra breezy and extra talk self-deprecating and like I think that I think so much of my personality since then has been a, a reaction to like no no don't worry I don't need help I'm not the kind of cuckoo that's gonna suddenly you know like disappear on you or do something dangerous um and and I think I felt so much shame that I had tried and that I had done that. And it was like this giant secret that I didn't want people to know about as I got older. Uh, and then I think a, another real turning point is just like is just realizing how much this is on people's mind. Like the, to have the thought of suicide, you know, is – uh, there, you know, Camus writes about it being on the the minds of like a majority of of the population at any yeah. moment, you know, and that he's yeah. not really kidding. And and this idea that that the thought itself is is okay, like it's okay to talk about. It's okay to you know, in the right context with the right people. It's it, the thought itself being there. It might come and go, and it and it might be. It might be a part of you forever. Lulu has made peace with her thoughts about suicide that show up sometimes, which is different than attempting it. We've talked about this on the show before, how unexpected thoughts about something like that can be very upsetting, which is understandable. 
If you are thinking about suicide, we want you to check that out and talk to someone who can help you. We have information about that on our Facebook. There's also help available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255, or you can text HOME to 741-741. That's the crisis text line. They're always available. They never close. Okay, long diversion there, but important, obviously. Now, Lulu Miller. She got on a better track. She went to college at Swarthmore. And after college, she got a job in New York with a woodworker in the shop. And all day long, the radio was on. And I told myself as a kid I hadn't liked NPR. I associated that with boring, with what my parents liked, you know, and... But this was like the first year that I fell hard for public radio. Um, and, the, you know, the radio WNYC was on all day long. And I felt so informed and I felt so connected. And I liked that that mix of getting information without visual, without reading, hearing the human voice. And then I happened across, you know, I, I started falling in love with This American Life, and I happened across this show called Radio Lab, which was new. It wasn't even national yet. This was 2005. Radio Lab is a very popular public radio show and podcast. It's hosted by Jad Abumrad. It was everything I wanted. It was like someone you talk using science to talk about meaning and feelings and big existential questions. And there was nerdery. I'm sure there was some etymology. But then there were feelings and there was a reverence. Like there was this gorgeous whiplash of highbrow, lowbrow and of deep light. And and there was new sounds with, with, you know, like experiments with sound and it was just energetic. And so anyway, I heard I heard an episode on emergence and the concept of how does order emerge out of chaos. And um, there was this beautiful piece about fireflies all blinking in unison. And I just was like, I want to be in this space where these people explain the world to me. And I I wrote them just kind of like a deranged, I binged a bunch of episodes and wrote them a formal intern request letter, aka deranged love letter, um, <laughs> and and basically said, like, I... You don't need me. It shows from your website you have plenty of people helping you. But if you want someone, I will come do anything. And can I help make your thing? And I, you know, they were new. They did need someone. And so I came and volunteered one day a week for a year while I stayed working for the woodworker. And Tuesdays I would go in and like every – it was just so alive in there. And even just like going to a staff meeting and hearing how they batted around ideas was amazing. And then they they just – they drop you out of the nest really quickly. Like they just give you some gear. And, you know, at, at Radiolab, I just fell madly in love with all of it, with the interviewing, with the adventure, with the sitting and grooming and honing it into a story and trying to reflect back some bit of reality. Lulu got hired on full time at Radiolab, which is like, imagine if you heard a band on the radio, loved their music a lot and then asked to join that band, and they said okay. Or it's like if you loved Game of Thrones, and you contacted them, and then you were cast in a major role. Charmed life. 
She's young, has a dream job, living in New York. She went from not wanting to exist to on top of the world. And my mental state then was like kind of fine. I was in this good relationship uh, with a guy I'd met in college and we lived in a cute little one bedroom in Brooklyn that had a great front stoop. And I was, you know, had like tricked my way into this dream job that I was deeply underqualified for working at Radiolab. And um, I, I just, I, you know, stuff was like going in a certain way, way better than I thought. And then, and then like I go ahead and wreck all the good things I just told you about. Her boyfriend broke up with her. So I cheated on him with a woman and then I told him about it and he was like, no, like it's over. And, you know, I tried to say, well, I think that was just some sort of slip up. And he was like, understand, you know, he just he was like, this is you can't take this so lightly, even if, you know, if like if you're having questions about your sexuality, like let's talk about it. You don't get to just go be reckless and hurtful. And and I just, I was like, we had been together for seven years and he was, he, he was just such, you know, he's a delightful person and he was so much lightness and so much good. And I was just like, oops, you just forsook the, the best thing that this chaotic world has ever tossed your way. And you just, you just took it for granted and, and now you're alone. And like the shame and our friends knew and, I felt bad and I felt like I couldn't even get sympathy for how lonely I was because I had done the bad thing. Lost the guy, then gave up radio. I had loved radio and I was there for five years, but this little like hankering desire to try writing fiction, which had always been my dream since I was a little kid, like stories were the place I took comfort. I just loved imagining, wanted to reside there. And I, I just wanted to like give that dream a shot before I before I felt like I got too old and never tried. So, cool Brooklyn brownstone, gone. Beloved boyfriend of many years, gone. Dream job, gone. Pain, fish, and redemption are all just ahead. That's after the break. I asked Lulu to pick out some samples from her work to play on this episode of our show. This is from a story on Invisibilia about a guy who is blind but navigates the world through, essentially, echolocation like bats do. And then, in a somewhat surreal gesture, Daniel pulls down his lower eyelids Let me just... and removes his eyes. Okay. They're prosthetic, of course, and they clink a little bit as he hands them over to me. That's so cool. Two of the most beautiful hazel blue eyes I've ever seen in the palm of his hand. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illnesses. Not just depression, but all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having a lot of laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression, maybe demystifying depression a little bit, make it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. It's serious. The good news is that people can and do recover. They get help, and that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. It can be an awkward conversation, but makeitokay.org is full of information you can use. 
like what to say, what not to say, and it has stories of hope from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org where you can take the pledge to Make It Okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. Back with Lulu Miller. Here's more from that same story as before the break. It's Lulu and her Invisibilia co-founder, Elise Spiegel. What this work suggests Uh is that you may not actually need eyes to see. I kind of feel like we got to shout it from the rooftops. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay. You might not need eyes to see! And Laura is by no means the only person seeing this result. The idea first started coming up in the mid-90s when a lab at Harvard saw that visual areas of the brain can be activated by sound and touch. Do I have to do it? Uh Uh-huh. You might not need eyes to see! Okay, now let's get to that scientist we heard about at the beginning. David Starr Jordan, um, (laughs) this taxonomist, this ichthyologist. Obscure ichthyologist whose name sounds like a rock star or a pro athlete. I mean, it's a really cool-sounding yeah, name. Yeah, he does. He's very Lance Armstrong. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, he really is. He invented his middle name, though. He gave he gave himself the middle name Star because he liked stars. This will connect to depression and Lulu's health. I promise. David Starr Jordan was an ichthyologist, studied fish, president of Indiana University and founding president of Stanford University. He identified and named thousands of fish, which he kept preserved in jars at Stanford. Lulu first encountered his work several years before. A couple of years out of college, I was starting out as a science reporter. I was working for Radiolab. Um, I was on a getting a tour of the back rooms of a the California Academy of Sciences out in California. And I heard this little detail that there was a guy who, after the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco, a ton of his specimens were destroyed. The fish came out of their jars. They were, you know, the jars were shattered. And um, all this order that he had essentially spent decades making, you know, figuring out the names of fish and bottling them, you know, it was just undone in a second. And instead of giving up after that moment, as I may have done, um, and like heeding what seems to be the clear sign of that earthquake that in a world ruled by chaos, any attempts at order are eventually doomed, he started this little technique of attaching the labels directly to the fish with a sewing needle. He would sew them on. Okay, small, nerdy detail on a tour of a science museum. And I just remember thinking immediately, like, oh, what a what an idiot, you know, like how <laughs> foolish, how human to think he could somehow outsmart chaos. Like his order will be destroyed again. It, it's it's silly that he even tried, but it's so human. It, it's kind of like an Icarus who, who wants to fly too close to the sun. And this is just what we do. We we fight chaos, but it but he will fail. How many jars are we talking about here? Over a thousand. I mean, just hundreds and hundreds of of, you know, and each one of those imagine like the the hours and days it took to catch it and find it and identify it. I mean, just like so much work undone, decades of a life undone in a second. And I didn't know his name. I just knew it was the guy in charge of the fish collection. And I I thought like it was just a quick chuckle to myself of what a fool. 
You learn a ton of odd, intriguing information working in radio, but the story of David Starr Jordan and his literally shattered specimen collection and his trying to piece it back together, that stayed with Lulu. And she thought about it more and more during her creative writing MFA program, where she was writing fiction stories. I could just tell they weren't good and they weren't working and I didn't know how to do it. And there was just this, I think it was just, I felt like a failure on love and creativity. And I felt like I had left behind this, you know, this like life of radio and what was I doing and who was I to think I could even try. And I think it was just, it was loneliness on loneliness on loneliness on shame on shame. How did she know the stories weren't good? The flatness on the faces of my classmates during workshop, like, of how unmoved <laughs> they were by my stories gave me a little clue that maybe I wasn't so good at writing. Um, it, everything, it was just, it just, like, everything felt felt hard and, like, I was just completely lost in the world. And And I remember, like, I was authentically, I just felt like, more scared of the world than I had in a long time. And and I remember there was like this one spot in my apartment, this little like attic-y apartment in Charlottesville that had yellow walls, kind of sickly yellow walls. And I was like, there's this one spot you could sit where you couldn't really see out any of the windows. Like you couldn't feel seen and and that was like I just kept being drawn to that spot in the apartment. And I think it was like this one little spot I felt safe where I didn't have to like admit how much in my life wasn't going well. And like it was this one tiny spot almost where I could like have hope because I didn't have to confront reality or something. I don't know. There was a gravitational pull toward this spot on the floor. And anyway, it was there. I remember it. Like, I started thinking about this fish guy again. And I was like, you know, he didn't think about his chances in the world. He just started sewing labels to fish. And like, originally, I thought this was an idiot and a cautionary tale. But is there any chance that like life turned out well for him? And actually, what became of that guy? And maybe he wasn't a fool. And maybe we all need a little of his confidence and swagger to get through the bad times. Yeah. Like the value of of humility and knowing how doomed your chances are and 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 just feeling that that any kind of hubris or self-denial would lead to to evil and danger and bad and cruelty. Like it it just felt very dangerous to to have I don't know to 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 behave like him and so anyway but yeah so basically at eventually at a certain point I just said well he was a real guy I can find out his name and I can find out what happened to him and and I figured I'd write a short essay called like man versus chaos you know use writing to make some meaning and then what happened was I like you know just fell down this this rabbit hole where he was a very interesting person and had written a ton. So there was a lot of material to search and he was funny and he was opinionated and he was a little bonkers and he has a very surprising dark side. And it just made him it made him really fun to research. And and then it just spiraled into this weird ass book. <laughs> well, you <laughs> and um... here we are today. 
okay, so you so you latch onto this guy's story, but here's what I know about the story, and you write about in the book, is that yes, uh, this guy stitched, you know, he he fought the chaos, he stitched the words onto the onto the specimens, and he did all this, and then also. It it got dark. Like there's eugenics and possibly a murder in there too. Yeah, and like definite emotional cruelty and 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 uh, manipulation of of, pe- of people who stood in his way. Yeah, it got dark. It got dark, 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 dark. <laughs> it got way dark. <laughs> so was he was he still a, a hero of sorts, or were you just letting yourself? have some relief from your own mind by getting carried away with this story. I think both. I mean, I think, I think, yeah, like I'm mocking this obsessive guy for, for continuing to pine away on a persist on a task that seemed doom. And the resonance for me there was that at that point I was like holding the candle for this guy who was not, you know, years went by and I was like, well, maybe if I repent hard enough, he will see I was sorry and all will be well, and I just tried not mm. to notice that he wasn't calling me back, writing me back, texting me back, that he had a girlfriend. Uh, like I was <laughs> trying to wonder if you ignore those signs, can you end up OK? And I think, yeah, there was some comfort of just, you know, I'm like mocking David Star Jordan for being obsessive while being obsessive about researching his life. I got to the point where I was like requesting this one arcane text from a science library and like even the librarians started getting concerned about my mental health. They were like, <laughs> you're back again. Like, And I'm like, you are a f- fish science library, but you th-, like it was like it was bad. Yeah. Um, even among but, fish librarians, this is this is dismaying. Like at first they're dazzled. Someone's there and want and then they're like, is she OK? Is she OK? She's back again. Um, but, but no, I think, I mean, I think what I've learned from him, like, is, is that, you know, I wanted him to be a parable. I wondered if he was good or bad. And I learned he was both like, you know, I'm so sorry if that's deeply unsatisfying, but he, he has some, I think there is some real danger. Obviously I've, I've always thought that that wasn't new, like that there is, there's real danger. Turns out hubris can can take you some dark places. But the learning for me was that it also really helped him achieve things. And and I kind of went down this whole research wormhole on what's called positive illusions and which is this kind of delusion light, <laughs> like just uh-huh. a r- slightly rosy sense of yourself that isn't entirely out of whack that like we need that like that might be the best gift evolution ever bestowed upon us is to believe we have better chances than we inherently do. And I kind of have come to the place where like if used in moderation, a little bit of of hope like is OK. I'm wild. I guess hope's okay a little. Yeah. Um, and but yeah, that like it. I mean, it has powerful, measurable effects. Like it is this strange delusion. It's this strange alchemy of delusion, where like delusions of grandeur can create realities of grandeur. And and I I think there was something helpful in seeing like you bounce back from trauma from bad relationships, you have more success in relationships at work. Like there are all these measurable effects about what like a little sprinkle of positive illusion can do. And I think that started to get me to see like it is 
is okay. It is okay to have to like on one hand know, you know, to not always take the 100% depressive uh, realistic mindset. Self-delusion and long-dead fish scientists with enormous dark sides as a treatment for depression. Okay, not widely prescribed, but I mean, we always say find a path that works for you. I think there was more to how she addressed her problem, though. Lulu followed her instinct to find the science story and the feelings, the emotions, the people hidden in it, because that's what she had always done. She returned to a truthful part of herself. It would seem to me that you're in a pretty good place. You know, we're, we're talking, you're cheerful, you're, uh, you're married now, and you, uh, you have this book coming out, you finished a book, it's going out into the world. But you also, uh, you know, have a history of being performative about seeming great when you're not. <laughs> All uh, great, Lu- Dunmo. Lu- Lulu Miller, great. how are you doing? Everything's great. Everything's great. Um, <laughs> I am doing pretty okay right now. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that I think age has just helped me to like understand my body and my brain more like a machine and just know very simply the things that help me. And and one of those things, so yeah, I'm, I'm married to a woman who is so hilarious. I mean, humor helps. And um, she also has amazing boundaries. Um, and I remember early on, um, you know, we could talk about anything. We could laugh. We had so much fun. And then I think like a sad. Oh, she's also th- she's a psychologist. Uh, <laughs> and and I remember early on, you know, like a bad something came up. And, and at a certain point there, you know, there was some stuff going on. And, and, and she was like, she was like, oh, I'm always here. Um, but you you need a therapist again. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and she was like and I think that it was just like there and so I found my way to another therapist and again that that has been phenomenal. She she was someone I started talking to in Charlottesville and I'm still working with over the phone though in the process of finding someone in Chicago and letting go it's going to be fine. Um <laughs> but she uh that's been really helpful and just kind of this I think the one of the biggest things that has you know there are concrete things that help me, and one of them is running in a big way, and one of them is therapy, and one of them is is humor and finding the friends that you can, like, laugh about this stuff with. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think just the – like, the really big one has has honestly just come with age, which is just seeing time and time again, like – for as bad as it feels, the universe then surprises you with good. Yeah. And like just this faith that there is another side to the feelings and that it can lift. And, you know, maybe that means that my depression and the stuff I've struggled with isn't as serious. Like if I can, if I can, you know, like just use that faith in change and chaos and a mix of therapy and sleep and running, <laughs> you know, like a, maybe maybe that means it's it's in a better place right now. But I, I do think, like, 
man, that helps that helps diffuse the dark thoughts of just like you're having a bad day and there will be a good day. <laughs> I really, really love Lulu's book, in part because it's just weird as hell. It's the story of this fish guy, but there's a lot of memoir in there too. The intersection of teen agony and 19th century fish taxonomy. You learn why she got so fascinated with the life of David Starr Jordan. Okay, time for the big question. Lulu Miller, why don't fish exist? They do not exist because if you are interested in ordering groups of creatures based on how they are related evolutionarily, so not just by like an invented category like all things that are pink or all things that are striped, like fine, those are categories (laughs) you can make. But if you want to actually like make groups of creatures based on how they're related— um, fish is not a scientifically sound category. The easiest way to explain this is if you take a cow and a salmon and a lungfish, which is a fish that looks very fishy, it looks very similar to a salmon, and you put those all together, um, and you ask which two are most closely related, most people will say the lungfish and the salmon, and yes. there's a cow over there. Those are fish. That's a cow. Um but the truth is, if you start to look deeper at at some of their parts, uh, you will discover that a lungfish and a cow are much more closely related than a lungfish and a fish. And once you and there's all kinds of other examples of this, but basically, once you start to accept that that down in that category of things that we commonly think look like fish, um, that there are things in there, tons of things in there that don't belong, that are closer to us. Then you start to realize, okay, that's not a meaningful category. So either if you want to keep all the fish together, you can do that, but you've got to throw in frogs and salamanders and you and me and birds. Like then fish just basically means vertebrate animal. Fine, you could do that. But if you are interested in like actually talking about concrete categories of creatures on Earth, fish is just it's a sloppy approximation. And and swimming in the water is all kinds of nuance. There are all these, there's actually all these other groups, some of which are closer and some of which are further. And the reason that that I care, like, okay, fine, that's just a fussy semantic distinction for taxonomists. But I think for me, when I started to like really realize what that meant, it's just yet another reminder that we are horrible at carving up the world, that we barely know what we're looking at, that some of like even the most basic categories we have wrong. And that matters, I think, for a lot of reasons. But one of the ones that helps me, honestly, in a depression-y way <laughs> is like to remember that we're constantly going to be discovering new things and that the world is going to surprise us because our understanding of it is so meager, that like our gloomiest of impressions of how flat and known and stuck it all is, like that is waiting to be kind of shattered if we just stick around and look. Um, And so that's what that title sort of means to me is like a private almost mantra of if fish don't exist, what else don't we know? 
Lulu Miller has a book recommendation, Stay, A History of Suicide and the Philosophies Against It, by the educator and poet Jennifer Michael Hecht. Lulu says it has helped her quite a lot. I recorded this interview before COVID-19 got to be huge. I followed up with Lulu just recently to find out how she is now. She says she was crushed that her book tour was canceled, but now she sees her one-year-old son enjoying his bath, and that cheers her up a lot. On our next episode, depression led comedian Emmy Blotnick to make some choices her audience could not really relate to. I once ate an entire head of cabbage at room temperature with nothing on it, alone in silence. And then I tried to do bits about it. I'm like, y'all ever eat a head of cabbage alone in silence? (laughs) And no one related. Of course they don't relate. That's a weird thing to do to punish yourself. (laughs) Yeah, I, I don't like to judge on this show, but that's weird as fuck. The Hilarious World of Depression is a production of American Public Media. Our production team this time out includes Chrissy Pease, Christina Lopez, Phyllis Fletcher, Johnny Vince Evans, and Eric Romani. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. It's free, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. MakeItOK.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Starting that conversation can be awkward. Make It OK has tips on what to say and what not to say. It has stories of hope from people who have been there. You can take the pledge to Make It OK at MakeItOK.org. Hilariousworld.org is our web home. We're also on Twitter, and come visit us on Facebook. Search for the show name or Thwadballs. I'm John Moe. Bye now. Something I don't know